2: You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of the Grand Budapest Hotel.
0: Why do you want to be a lobby boy? Who wouldn't?
2: At the Grand Budapest, sir. And so my life began.
0: Junior lobby boy in training, under the strict command of Monsieur Gustav H. <laughs> Many of the hotel's most valued and distinguished guests came for him. I love you. I love you. She was dynamite in the sack, by the way. She was 84. I've had older. This was also when I met Agatha. She's charming. She's so charming. Is he flirting with you? Yes. I approve of this union. I became his pupil, and he was to be my counselor and guardian. The police are here. Tell them I'll be right down. She's been murdered, and you think I did it. You're looking so well, darling, you really are. I don't know what sort of cream they've put on you down at the morgue, but I want some.
1: This is Madame D's last will and testament to Monsieur Gustave H. I
0: bequeath a painting known as Boy with Apple. Wow, what? Who's Gustave H? I'm afraid that's me, darling. If I learn you ever once laid a finger on my mother's body, living
3: or dead, I go to bed with all my friends.
0: We need to make a plan for your
1: survival. Hide this. It's in code, and you might need a magnifying glass to read it, but it tells you exactly where and how to
2: find Boy With Apple.
0: I'm a baker. I'm not a fence, if that's the term. I want roadblocks at every junction for 50 kilometers. I want railblocks at every train station for 100 kilometers. Get in!
2: I want 50 men and 10 bloodhounds ready in five minutes.
3: I'll arrest him simply because he's a bloody immigrant.
0: Take your hands off my lobby boy! Have you ever been questioned by the authorities?
2: Yes, on one occasion. What, what, what? I was arrested and tortured
3: by the rebel militia after the mm-hmm. desert uprising.
2: Right. Well, you know the drill then. Zip it. All right, everybody. You were just listening to the trailer for the Grand Budapest Hotel. And the story is as follows In the 1930s, the Grand Budapest Hotel is a popular European ski resort presided over by concierge Gustave H. Zero, a junior lobby boy, becomes Gustave's friend and protege. Gustave prides himself on providing first class service to the hotel's guests. Including satisfying the sexual needs of the many elderly women who stay there. When one of Gustav's lovers dies, mysteriously, Gustav finds himself in the recipient of a priceless painting and the chief suspect in her murder. The film is starring, deep breath here, Ray Fiennes, F. Murray Abram, Mattel Almeric. Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, Harvey Keitel, Jew Law, Bill Murray, Edward Norton, Saoirse Ronan, Jason Schwartzman, Leah Sedu, Tilda Swinton, Tom Wilkinson, Owen Wilson, and Tony Revolori. Joining me for this podcast review for this grand Wes Anderson picture, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Nicole Ackman. Hi, everybody. And Dan Baer.
3: We've become good friends. <laughs>
2: Have we? Have we become good friends? <laughs> I mean, I think so. <laughs> I think I think I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty clear as well. Uh, this is this is fun. This is good. This is uh, part of our 2014 retrospective, and I can't tell you all how much I didn't realize I needed this viewing of this movie during this quarantine time. What a delightful film in so many ways, and. Yet, there's actually more that I uncovered on this latest viewing of The Grand Budapest Hotel than I think I ever have on previous viewings. Because back when I saw this in 2014, I liked it, I respected it, but I didn't love it. And then I saw it again a couple of years later, and I kind of felt the same way. This, I think, is the first time, though, where I think I genuinely do love this film now. And I'm not exactly sure what has changed, necessarily. I don't know if it has to do with the film's themes and the turns that it takes. I don't know if it's because it's a little bit of everything all encapsulated into one movie. I'm not so sure if it's the analog style of filmmaking that Wes Anderson employs with his uh, filmmaking style. I I don't know. But what I do know is this. I do know that this movie was pretty well received upon its release. It's well-received now. It's considered by many to be Wes Anderson's best film. So, yeah, I'm very, very excited to talk about it for the 2014 retrospective. Let's pass it over first to Nicole. Nicole, what do you think of The Grand Budapest Hotel?
0: Um, Part of why I wanted to be on this episode, actually, is because I saw this movie for the first time in January. And it was my first Wes Anderson film. I'd never seen any of his work before which I think gives me a little bit of a different perspective than maybe some people uh, would have on it, having seen it, you know, for the first time this year. And I watched it again last night, and it confirmed to me everything that I felt upon first watching it, which is that this is a delightful film that is far more charming than it has the right to be. It is fascinating to me in that its plot is so convoluted. Like, listening to you give the recap of it just then, I was like... Okay, yeah, I guess you can kind of summarize it, but, like, not really. Someone asked me what the film was about, and I had no idea what to tell them. I was like, well, it's about this hotel clerk, but then this, and then also, also Saoirse Ronan's there. They were like, what? Um, and yet it works so perfectly and it never really loses you. And I think a lesser filmmaker would definitely lose you in this plot. Um, but it's it's stylistically just gorgeous. The style definitely works for me. And the performances are so fun, but also some of them are very touching in a way that like I wouldn't have expected from them. And I, I just found it really wonderful.
2: Yeah, I I do think that Wes Anderson, with this particular film, with the screenplay, he does get a little wordy Mm -hmm. with this one. I think that does aid into the confusion at times with the plot. The bare bones of the plot itself make a lot of sense. And I think that's what's easy to follow. I I, I think sometimes... Anderson gets a little too lost or in in love with his own writing, particularly with this movie. And and especially considering it also takes place in a foreign country, and even though it's not in a foreign language, there's a lot of locations that don't actually exist that are being mentioned, a lot of terms being used, and a lot of, um, uh, you know, just very smart diction that, (laughs) quite frankly, for the average uh, person might fly over one's head a little bit, and it does kind of, I think, bog down What ultimately, to your point, Nicole, is a very simple plot um, that can be perfectly summarized, but yeah, there's a lot going on with this one. We'll definitely break it down for sure.
0: With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and
1: the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and
0: start getting lucky for free at luckylandslots.com are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details
3: coming up on five minute news i'm anthony davis
2: Uh, Let's hear now from someone else. Let's hear from Josh. So when it comes
1: to most of Wes Anderson's movies, to be completely honest with you, I'm not that receptive to them. Uh, He's a filmmaker that I've respected and I get why people really do love him. But for the most part, his movies just I walk away with and I'm like, they're fine, but I'm not in love with them, with very few exceptions.
2: Josh. yeah, me too. Seriously. So yeah, you guys are killing me right now. <laughs> no, I I, he just summarized perfectly my relationship with Wes Anderson perfectly.
1: But you know what? I, I had not seen this movie since it probably came out in 2014. And I wanted to look at it with a completely different perspective. And, you know, when it started, I was actually like kind of pleasantly surprised by it. I have found myself actually sort of enjoying this world and these characters. And I was into it a lot more than I remembered it. And then act one ended. And then I remembered why I had issues with it. And I feel like once we get past the beginning, my usual issues with Wes Anderson started to come up where it's beautiful to look at. But I didn't really find myself connecting with the story and the characters, and it kind of started to drain on me a little bit. I don't think this is a bad movie. There's a lot of things in it that I think are are well done. Most of them are the crafts, and I also think particularly uh, the Ray Fiennes performance is the best thing about it by a log mile. But overall, it still is sort of a Wes Anderson movie, and. I think that that's something that you either are going to be very responsive to or you're not really going to take to it. And unfortunately, I fell more on the latter side with this one.
2: And that's to be expected, too, with a filmmaker as distinctive in style as Wes Anderson. It's something that is so unique, only that he has, that people often compare his work to others and say, oh, that's very Wes Anderson-like. You know, so he is a barometer in the way that we look at other people's work nowadays. So you're either going to jive with that or you're not. And I can completely understand if he is an acquired, uh, that he's an acquired taste and he may not necessarily appeal to everyone. Totally, totally understand that. I like you, Josh, in the same way in the sense that I like Wes Anderson. I have often found his movies very pretty as well to look at. And there are aspects of it that I really, really like. Grand Budapest Hotel has one thing in it working in its favor that pushes it over the edge for me, and it is Ray Fines, which I will get into in a little bit as well. But before we do, Dan Bear.
3: <laughs> um, so I love Wes Anderson. Um, he his sense of humor is very much in line with my own and I appreciate the distinctiveness of his work um, in a way that I don't with a lot of other filmmakers who may have stronger work but not as distinctive as his Um, and I was really, really, really looking forward to this one in 2014 and especially after it opened to the rapturous reviews and best of his career and um you know all that stuff. And I remember at the time coming out of it thinking, well, that may just be the most Wes Anderson movie that he's ever made, but his best I don't know. Um, and I have, I own it on Blu ray and I've watched it a couple of times since uh, it came out. And every time I watch it, I have this same good time and I enjoy it. Um, I particularly enjoy how it's like, <laughs> this. there are sequences in this that are basically straight out of a 1930s. Or, you know, like early, like that border between silent and talky cinema, uh, slapstick comedy style. And I I really, really love it. It's basically like a 1930s movie that was made with 2010s technology and stars and capability. But then there's the framing device. Mm-hmm. Which I still don't fully
2: understand, and I was hoping you guys would help to clear this up for me during this review.
3: (laughs) So so here's my thing about it. I don't think it works. The Grand Budapest Hotel. I mean, Wes Anderson is particularly interested in movies that are presented like stories being told to the audience. Um, A lot of them have a narrator uh, some of them even have, you know, like t- the Royal Tenenbaum says actual books and chapter titles. And actually, you know, Dan,
2: if I may, and, it almost yeah. feels like at times they could be pop up books with the way that his films <laughs> yes. visually look sometimes.
3: Yes, well, the, those perfectly <laughs> symmetrical frames and everything, like it's a very storybook like quality to them. Sure. Right. Um, and he's very enamored of this certain, like, 1930s to 50s style of storytelling Um, and the Grand Prix de Hotel to me is analogous to the position of like Inglorious Bastards for Tarantino or Inception for Christopher Nolan where it is about this specific auteur and his point of view on movies and the movie he movies he makes and why he makes them and what he's trying to do with them
2: that makes a lot of sense i i i really really like that a lot otherwise
3: i cannot explain the framing device because it it's so needlessly complicated and layers on layers on layers of stories within stories within stories, within stories that you know the main narrative with Rafe Fines and Tony Revolori and Saoirse Ronan at the Grand Budapest that takes up the bulk of the movie. I, I think it starts maybe like at ten minutes in, maybe yeah, like yeah. ten minutes in, and then but it ends with only like a minute left.
2: Yeah, because the movie starts off with a young girl who's reading uh, the story that's presented by uh, The Offer, played by Tom Wilkinson, which takes place in 1985. And he's the narrator, except he's not the narrator, because then we're introduced to F. Murray Abraham, uh, who's playing Mr. uh, Mustafa, who we find out uh, is an elderly uh, zero, which, by the way, I I don't really know if the uh, time frame works in terms of the age uh, progression, but I'll let that one go for a little bit. And he's telling the story to Jude Law's character, and Jude Law is meant to be a young version of Tom Wilkinson.
0: I'm <laughs> not sure what we are telling Jude Law that he will look like when he's older in the film industry. <laughs> I feel like he, gets, he really gets the short end of the stick a lot of the time. <laughs> I don't know. Like,
2: There's just a lot of...
0: There's a lot of connecting dots that you have to work really hard to do. And if you strip all this away, in my opinion...
2: It doesn't impact the actual story that we care about. Right. But I I actually do like F. Mary Abram, an elderly zero, telling the story to Drew Law. But I don't think you need to have Drew Law being the elderly Tom Wilkinson who then writes this into a novel, unless if there is a grander theme here, to your point there, Dan. And what I interpreted it as is this is a creation of a world of a bygone era that is a fictional um, part in Eastern Europe that doesn't actually exist, but it's like this creation of a world, a story, um, kind of a bit of like a fairy tale, if you will, right? And it's a story that's being passed down. And there's this uh, line that um, F. Murray Abram like tells uh, when he's like talking to Jude Law, like in the bathtub, about like how times have changed, and there's like a there's like little glimpses of dialogue in the movie that talk about like the passage of time and how things are changing and such and i have to say what you just said in regards to wes anderson looking introspectively at his own filmography might be the best explanation i think i've ever heard to kind of tie all this together
3: (laughs) there is a lot in there about things like um When Jude Law is talking about the Grand Budapest, which you know used to be you know the 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 Grand Budapest, and now is just like you know it's it's beautiful, but it's kind of fallen into a little bit of disrepair. Maybe it's not the grandeur has faded, and he's in the um the Turkish baths with uh, F Murray Abraham, like you know a few baths away, and. Abraham says it, like something along the lines of it the they were too decadent for current tastes. And that's why none of them, no, they're the only ones there. Um, and there there's a lot of things like that of people feeling like they were of a previous time period, but were born into the current one. And I genuinely believe that that is how Wes Anderson sees himself. If you look at the way he dresses and acts and presents himself and talks and writes, he feels very much like someone who should be in the 1940s or 50s. Hollywood.
2: Yeah. He's of a different time for sure. He's of
3: a different time. And I, I I feel very, I feel very much like that. He feels that. And this movie was about that. And I mean, go figure like, It's not just that Tom Wilkinson writes this story into a major novel, but he becomes, like, the leading figure (laughs) in literature for his country, right? I mean, like, it's a whole thing.
2: (laughs) One might say it's the uh, beginning of the end of the end of the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can say that. Hey, everyone. Sorry to interrupt, but this is a preview of our full review of the Grand Budapest Hotel, part of our 2014 retrospective here on the Next Best Picture podcast. In order to get the full hour and 15 minute long review, you will have to head on over to our Patreon page, where for $1 minimum a month for Next Best Picture, you will get this review and other exclusive podcast content from us as well. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google play stitcher tune player fm acast cast box and also on spotify be sure to leave us a review on apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show we really appreciate your feedback there and your support thank you so much for listening as always and we shall see you all next time Mad Magazine Advertising mascots B-movie posters And cartoons
3: Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons
2: If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar
1: See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums
2: and dive bars Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies
1: So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the
2: music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at two com,
1: and listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.